0: pretty random video. Talk to me about it. What is the uh, point of the video? It's an experiment that happened at MIT. And uh, what are they trying to prove? Yawning is contagious. Good. What else? What other thoughts do you have about the video and its message? <laughs> if you don't look at him, you might not yawn. How many? I see someone yawning right now. How many of you yawned during that video. I did a couple times. Yeah, I mean, for some weird reason, yawning is contagious. In fact, last service, after I even said that statement, for the next like 30 seconds, as I'm looking at people, like yawn, yawn, yawn. I mean, like, I had to tell everybody, okay, stop, please, stop. But yawning is contagious. There's a French saying that says when... One good gaper makes two others gape. It's a, sta- a statement that, uh, really, the point of it, one good gaper makes two others gape, or one good yawner makes two others yawn. The idea is that the movement and action of one can influence the many. But the movement and action of one can influence many. And it's another way of saying that stuff is contagious. That it kind of passes from person to person individual to individual and the technical definition of that idea is the word meme now a meme how many of you know what a meme is okay about five of you There there's six in the first service so a meme let me give you a quick definition up on the screen a meme is an idea belief or belief system or pattern of behavior that spreads throughout a culture either vertically by cultural inheritance, so parents passing it on to their children, or horizontally by cultural acquisition, meaning peer-to-peer or from media or other outlets. So information, beliefs, thoughts, feelings, everything kind of moves forward in this idea or understanding of a meme. So it means that thoughts can go viral, ideas can become contagious, that there are Even spending. So there's this movie, I don't know if you've seen it, I haven't yet, it's called The Joneses. And the whole idea of the movie is, you provide one couple with everything you could want, and everyone else in the neighborhood will want it too. That their spending, even though they didn't spend anything, was contagious, and it caused the whole community to go into debt and spend crazy amounts of money, simply because this desire... This, this contagious, viral kind of thing. Another example is behavior or even feelings. I mean, studies have been done that if one particular person walks into a room overtly displaying a particular feeling, other people in that room will pick up and begin to act out and live out that same feeling. So There's all kinds of things in life that, that tend to be viral or contagious. But one of the things in the church at least in Western culture, that I think um, has begun to miss out on the power of the meme is the idea of discipleship. That that action, that words, that the life that we live in Christ is not being passed along person to person as well as it should be within Western culture. In fact, Western culture church, I think, um, really lacks a dynamic, energy that comes because of the lack of discipleship there's a uh, professor I think he teaches down at Talbot um, but one of the things he does is he gets uh, asked to go around the country occasionally and speak on this idea of discipleship and anytime he enters into a large crowd to speak on discipleship he will start off his talk with two questions and he asks the whole audience two questions you can kind of play along you don't have to raise your hand but just in your mind imagine if you would raise your hand or not to these two questions the first question that he asks the audience is this how many of you can say in the humble confidence of your heart that you are a true disciple of Christ so he'll ask this audience and then uh, he said normally what happens is uh, several people kind of sheepishly hold up their hand or you know someone will put it up and look around and nobody else is and then they kind of like you know you've done that before you just kind of, sh- oh, wait, okay. maybe I don't want to say that. Well, anyhow, he asks that question, and then he follows it up with a second question. And the second question he asks very similar, but he says, how many of you know in the humble confidence of your heart that you're convinced you are a Christian? And instantly, everyone's hand in the entire room goes up. The point that he makes right at the very beginning is this that we have somehow divorced the very idea of being a Christian from actually being a follower or disciple of Jesus. I mean, it's somewhat of what um, Danielle was alluding to, that you can, you can come in and be comfortable, and go, hey, I'm doing the Christian thing, I'm all about it, and yet your life, it doesn't translate to the things you say and to the things you do. And so he's talking about this idea that there's this huge deficit in discipleship. Another advocate for that is Dallas Willard. I know many of you are familiar with him. He's one of my favorite authors. He makes a couple statements that will be up on the screen. The first one is this. For at least several decades, the churches of the Western world have not made discipleship a condition of being a Christian. He goes on to say, the most telling thing about the contemporary Christian is that he or she has no compelling sense that understanding of and conformity with the clear teachings of Jesus is of any vital importance to life, and certainly not that it is any, in any way essential. He goes on to wrap up that thought by saying the effect is that we can, quote-unquote, believe the gospel but not live like Christians or, again, trust Jesus even though it has very little impact on our life. That is the state, in many ways, of Western Christianity in the church. I think that Titus 2 addresses some of why that's the case. So if you have your Bible, turn to the book of Titus, chapter 2. And uh, we're going to talk about this power of the meme. This idea of the, the meme of discipleship. Is there a way that we can allow discipleship to move in a contagious, viral idea movement? That happens in our lives and in the life of the church. And uh, I really think this passage speaks to that idea. So, the main point of the section we're about to look at in Titus chapter 2 is that the text, in this text, that we as the church, we the people, have the responsibility to make discipleship contagious. That we have the responsibility granted to us by God to make discipleship contagious, to viral, to make it move out into the world. So let's read um, Titus 2, 1-10. There will be three main ideas that come up that we're looking at today. Talking, modeling, and reputation. And we'll see all those in this text. So chapter 2, verse 1 says this, But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified self-control, Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. And in your teaching, show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Slaves are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. There's three main ideas in this text that I want to talk about. The first one is this idea of talking. A statement right at the very beginning of this passage says, but as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. The phrase right at the beginning, but as for you, is an emphatic Greek statement. What it, and what it's saying is, in contrast to the false teachers in chapter 1, you, the church, are supposed to teach sound doctrine. So it's this big contrast that's taking place. So he's saying to us as readers and to the people in Crete, he's saying, instead of teaching falsehood, communicate the things necessary for sound teaching or communicate the behavior necessary for sound doctrine. That's kind of the idea. Now the word sound is, where, is really healthy. It's where we get the, the word hygiene in Greek. It means healthy. So sound is healthy. So teach those things which bring about healthy living. Help us understand what it means to live out the gospel. That's what he's communicating here at the very beginning. But one of the most interesting things to me in the passage is the word teach. See, so the word for teach in this passage is not to preach, nor does it mean to teach, oddly enough. What it means is to talk or to speak to communicate. So he's saying like listen this is not about preaching, this is not about putting together a lesson and teaching something. This is about in the everyday avenues of life speaking something, talking about something, having it ruminate in your brain and your mind and your heart and then come out of your mouth and communicate it to other people. And so what he's asking the church to do and what he's asking Titus to do, Paul is saying listen out of your mouth, teach those things that help people to live out the gospel. Speak those things that help people to understand what it means to follow Him. So he's he's really talking about this idea of having sound ethics, healthy ethics, healthy living, and it being in accord with the gospel. Now, He's describing it as a responsibility of all of ours. And this is where I think the Western church has kind of um, done a disservice. And that is that we have somehow, as individuals, decided to further or forward on the responsibility of teaching to the church. We just kind of go, well, I'll scoot out from underneath that and pass it off to the church. And now it's the church's responsibility to be the primary teacher of people how to live and how to understand the gospel right? And I think that when that has happened, the church responds in uh, several kind of um, weird or unique ways to this particular phenomenon. And that is that we major on one of the things in the phrase, but miss the point of the phrase. Let me explain. Sometimes we'll see the church major on the idea of sound doctrine. And so they'll say, hey, it's the responsibility of the church to give you as much theology as you can handle, to like pour on these huge ideologies, to give you this lofty understanding, and then we'll just kind of assume that biblical living happens once you know all these high theoretical ideas. So we either side with the sound doctrine, or what we sometimes do is we major on the idea of teaching. So we go, oh, here's, here's how we'll do it. We'll promote more classes and more opportunities to get information. So we'll do Sunday morning. We'll do Sunday school even. We'll do Sunday night. We'll do Wednesday night. We'll have electives. We'll we'll find all these ways to, to cram more information in because the idea is the teaching. And I don't think the idea in this passage is really the doctrine, nor is it the idea that really the teaching in those two pers- prescribed ways, but it's really about the talking. I mean, what he's majoring on is this idea that it's in our speech that we are to to declare these things, that our very talking is to be about the ethics of the kingdom, and that it is my responsibility and your responsibility as followers of Jesus, as part of his church, to do it. And that's what Paul's getting at. Now one of the things you notice at New Community, I hope you notice, is that we highly value the idea of the priesthood of all believers. That there is not this hierarchy other than Christ at the top and then all of us. That's really the way it lays out. That we've all been given these responsibilities. So if we flesh out this text the way that I think it's being communicated is that it is, since it is our responsibility to make these things happen, then we would understand that the majority of the teaching that is supposed to happen in the life of the church happens in the informal rather than the formal. It happens better. It's more viral in the informal than it is in the structured, in the institutionalized. You see that? Yeah, I mean, we, we need to be the kind of people that recognize... That it is our speaking of the gospel, it's our speaking of how it's supposed to be lived out in our relationships and in our groups. And when we're working out at the gym together or when we're at the store, it's our nine to five, face to face interaction. That's where we see the power of the meme of discipleship happen. I mean, that's where it becomes viral. It doesn't become viral because we gather on a Sunday morning. It becomes viral because instead of trying to fit people in a room and having one person say something and then I yawn and then you yawn and then we all leave, instead we send a thousand yawners out into the society, they all yawn and then more people yawn. You get it? I mean, that's the point. And Paul is saying it is in our talking, it is in our speaking, it's in our everyday speech that these things happen. So my question to you this morning, my question to myself is this, do your words urge others to live out the Gospel? Do your words urge others to live out the Gospel? Have you fully lived into that calling, that responsibility? I'll read it one more time. Do your words urge others to live out the gospel. The second idea is this idea of modeling. So we have this idea of talking or speaking, and then now we have this idea that he brings up in the text of modeling, or of acting out what it is we believe. So he talks about this idea, and essentially what he's saying is that our teaching should happen with both our words and with our actions. So it should come out of our mouths and our tongue, but it also needs to flow out of our hands and our feet and the things that we do throughout the week. A guy by the name of Parker Palmer makes this statement. Verbalizing is not the only way our lives speak, of course. They speak through our actions and reactions, our intuitions and instincts, our feelings and bodily states of being perhaps more profoundly than through our words. Another guy by the name of Andrew Murray says, Not in what we say and teach, but in what we are and do lies the power of training. It is not our wishes or our theory, but our will and our practice that really train. It is by living the Christ life that we prove that we love it, that we have it, and thus will influence others to love it and have it too. So Paul is saying in this text, not just with your words, but in the way you model what it means to follow and live like Christ that matters. And he he describes two things. One, that we're to model Christian living. Now Paul in the book of Titus, if you haven't noticed it already, he likes to throw out tons of attitudes, dispositions, emotions, character qualities, that all of us are supposed to embody at different levels, right? There's about 30 plus different characteristics in the book of Titus that he loves to list in bullet format. And just starts like, you know, oh, let me add this one. In. This is another great one. We've got to have this. And he just describes all of these things. Now, before we jump back into the text and look at this next list of things he describes, let me say this right from the beginning. Paul is communicating into a particular context. What he is doing is he's speaking to the group of people in Crete and he's saying, for you in this context, what I am hoping to get across to you is this, that instead of looking like the culture in Crete, you need to look like you belong to a different kingdom. Instead of looking like the people around you, you need to have an entirely different ethic. So if we compare it to the text that he was talking about earlier, he's saying instead of looking like a liar, a glutton, a drunk, and just a stupid cretin, he's saying look like a follower of Jesus that is uniquely different than the culture. And that is the context he's speaking into. And so then he creates this list toward older men, younger men, um, older women, younger women, and even to slaves, okay, or to workers in our context. So he speaks these things. Let's look through, through them really quick. First one, older men, they're to be sober-minded, which literally means in the text not drunken. They're to be dignified or worthy of respect. They're to be sensible, which really is this idea of having discretion or discernment when they make decisions. And then they're supposed to be sound or healthy, in their faith, their love, and their perseverance. He goes on to describe the older women then, and says they need to be holy, not gossips. Again, not drunks, and teachers of good. Now, again, what he's doing is he's clearly speaking and trying to create this contrast between Cretan men and women and who we are called to be, or who they were called to be, the writers that he's writing to. And what's interesting is, He brings up not being drunk to both the older men and to the older women. The reason I find this interesting is because I don't necessarily think that in the church at that time, they had this huge drinking problem. I don't think there were like these monster parties that were going on where everyone's tipping back and they're like, man, we got to deal with this, Titus. I mean, this this is going awry fast. I think the point he's making, again, is the context. If all of the people around you are becoming drunk and lazy and gluttonous, then you can look entirely different than them if you're just not given to wine. You see the difference? So then he goes into these next three groups of people. He says the younger women are to love their families, their husbands and their children. They're to be self-controlled, pure, to keep a good house, to be kind and submissive to their husbands. He moves to the younger men and says they're to be self-controlled, to model good works. This idea of good works keeps coming up again and again in the text. To have integrity, dignity, and sound speech. And then he speaks to slaves. Again, he's not, uh, when he speaks into the context, again, he's not speaking saying, hey, um, slavery's great, let's keep it going. He's not even addressing the abolishment of it, but what he's saying is, in your context, with slavery, slaves, workers, act this way. And he says, be submissive, well pleasing, not argumentative, and not stealing. Really, the big gist, the big point, the overarching principle that he's communicating is this that we are to model things that represent godly living. That if you, if anyone was to look at your life or my life, that what they would be able to say and clearly point out is that there's a difference between the ethics that we live by and the ethics of the culture. There's a complete difference between our lifestyle and the lifestyle of those around us. Not in weird ways, but in holy ways. Not in like, you look like a nerd because you're trying to be a Christian kind of way, but in a, like, seriously, there is something about you and your character, who you are, the qualities of your life that are uniquely different than those around you. And he says then, he moves into this next idea, that we're to model it in our relationships. Now this is an implied statement rather than a, um, like a direct. He doesn't say like, hey, by the way, model this in your relationships. This is implied in the sense that what he does throughout the text is he says, older men, model this for the younger men. Older women, teach this to the younger women. All of us are to learn from one another and to be in relationship with one another. And so it's this idea of it being framed in relationship that we're really talking about. So Paul is really challenging us to do something that I think the church misses out on, and that is that we fail too often to leverage our relationships. So, this power of the meme, this ability to see something happen viral, doesn't happen because we fail to leverage our relationships. We try to do things outside of community. Or while we're in community, we don't recognize the influence that we have on one another. Or the opportunity we have to be influential. I'm convinced that this is another reason why we believe that not only does talking happen best, but actually modeling happens best not on a Sunday as well. You realize that, right? I mean, there are certain things you can model very well here. You can model... Uh, worshiping in well, You can model studying the text. You can model what it means to look at the back of someone's head for 40 minutes. You can model all kinds of different things, but you don't model in the same way that you do out in the world, right? I mean, that's why we would say that some of the most important stuff that happens in New Community actually happens not here. That's why we would say some of the most important leaders in the church are actually small group leaders out there and not in here. I put together a little list of why that's the case. It's because modeling happens. Let me list off some and you can think of a bunch more. It happens in homes, at dinner tables, in living rooms, when you have friends over. It happens at work. It happens while you're having a coffee, while you're talking at the park, while you're eating meals together. Happens even when you're sending emails. No matter what it is you're doing, when you're around individuals or groups, you have the opportunity to leverage that to influence people for the sake of Christ. To challenge people to live more like Him. To challenge people to speak more about Him. I mean, the opportunities are are pretty, pretty dramatic, but I think sometimes we just miss them. So let me ask you this question. How would, you, how would people describe the story of your life? How would people describe the story of your life? And another question would be, are your actions modeling a discipleship of Jesus? Are your actions modeling a discipleship of Jesus? There's a story uh, from a long time ago about St. Francis of Assisi. One day he was uh, headed into town there was another young monk that was by, and he walked over to the young monk and he said, I'm heading to town to preach. Would you be interested in joining me? And the young monk was pretty giddy at the opportunity and thought, oh man, this is great. And so they go into town together, and they spend almost a whole day in town. I mean, they're going through the streets, they're in the marketplace, they're going down alleys and the byways. They're rubbing shoulders with hundreds of people. And uh, all of a sudden, right near the end of the day, um, St. Francis starts walking and he's heading home, and this young monk's like, "What are we doing?" And so he follows him home. They get home, and then the young monk is just ticked off. He's like, "You told me we're going to town to preach, and I ne- you never once addressed the crowd, and you never once did I hear you share the gospel." And St. Francis it said, made this statement, "My son, we have preached. We were preaching while we were walking. We were seen by many and our behavior was closely watched. It is of no use to walk anywhere to preach unless we preach everywhere as we walk. And the point is pretty clear. That it is in our doing, it is in our action, it is in our modeling out there that things go viral. It's out there that lives are changed. They obviously are changed here, and I'm not negating what happens on a Sunday morning, but what I am saying is that if we actually want discipleship to move like a virus, if we want it to grow among us in amazing ways, it happens as we model it, it happens as we talk about it, and it happens in the informal even more than the formal. Which takes us to our third point. Reputation. Now, reputation is a theme that's seen in this text several times. Just in verses 1-10, through you're going to notice it over and over. But what he's saying is that our talking and our modeling will affect the reputation of the Gospel. That our talking and our modeling affect the reputation of the Gospel. And he says they do it in one of two ways. They either bring reproach to the name of Christ, it says, or they actually adorn the teachings of Jesus. They lift up. They declare as good the things that Jesus has spoken. You'll see it here. Uh, I put it up on the screen so you can follow along. But in verse 5 it says, So the word of God will not be reviled. So he's saying, live this way, act this way, talk this way, so that the word of God will not be reviled. In verse 8, Live this way. Have these character qualities in you. Be this kind of individual so that opponents may be put to shame having nothing evil to say. And then in verse 10, live again and act and model these things so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God. This is really where discipleship and mission connect. Too often, again, in the church, we kind of separate these two ideas. And we have this idea of mission, of calling, that we're supposed to go into the world and and teach the Gospel. And absolutely, 100%, that is our mission, that is our calling. And then we also have this other side of the coin where we go, you know what, it needs to be about developing ourselves spiritually and growing in Christ. And I would say, absolutely, exactly, it needs to be. And sometimes, it is our mission that drives us to recognize the need to further love and develop this relationship with Christ. But in this case, what Paul is saying and challenging us with is this. It is in your discipleship. It is in your speaking. It is in your modeling. That when you do these things and do them well, guess what? It's automatically missional. It's it's changing lives. That people are recognizing it. And it's profound for the reputation of Christ. That's what he's challenging us with here at the end. He's essentially saying that you can become a fifth Gospel. That you can become a third Testament. That your very life can be the thing that speaks. Your words and your actions can declare and lift up the teachings of Jesus and lift up Christ. So, come back to the beginning. The power of the meme. Some of you are still yawning. Stop. (laughs) But, start. Start yawning. Start discipling. Start allowing your relationships to be leveraged to change and influence people. Start allowing your words to speak and declare the Gospel. And as you do those things, the little French saying, the power of one gaper will make two gape. That if we all leave... Committed to say discipleship and being about the mission of God is what we're called to do. And it's risky. It takes sacrifice. It takes effort to do those things. And yawning will spread throughout the city. And that's our desire. Let's pray.